Hi, this is Chip, and this is Two Minute Time Lord podcast number 285, and this will not be a two-minute podcast. This is Time Dilation, which is my brand for podcasts that are just as long as the other guys. I just uh, have to invite some folks over, and I, I don't want to abuse their time. I want to use their time. And with me are the editors of the recently released, fantastic, compulsively readable collection, Chicks Unravel Time, part of Mad Norwegian's Geek Girl Chronicles series, and it is a look at the entirety of Doctor Who through uh, series six of the current series. With me are Deb Stanish and Liz Miles. Hello. Hi, Chip. I am so happy to have the both of you on this podcast to talk about a really, really great book. And I'd like to start uh, with Deb and ask where Chicks Unravel Time came from. Uh, Chicks Unravel Time actually came from a conversation that I was having uh, while we were finishing up Wedonistas, which was our previously, my previously uh, published Geek Girl Chronicle, um, and just talking about the general landscape of Doctor Who publications. Uh, with Chicks and Time Lords, I mean, it was a fantastic volume of women talking about their fanish experiences, but there really wasn't anything that was comparable that that really dug into the critique of Doctor Who. There's tons and tons of books out there that have done this, um, and they're all you know written by the guys, and and they're really wonderful tomes. And there's you know, ones that I go back and read frequently. But I really thought it would be interesting to kind of take this concept of uh, looking at female writers and and fans, uh, fanish experiences, but kind of twisting that on their heads a little bit, and and instead looking at each season from their through their viewpoint and through their own perspective, and see how it would be different, if it would be different at all, um, knowing, of course, that it, it would definitely um, fall along some slightly different lines. But it was kind of, a, in my perspective, it was an experiment for me and one that I think that turned out really, really interesting. How did you get roped into this, Liz? Oh, um, bar, convention, something like that. <laughs> I, I seem to recall vaguely. Uh, and then, then I said, my God, there should be more books that concentrate on how great the giant clam is. And Deb was like, yeah, yeah, there definitely should be. <laughs> and I think I think I met, my message might have got diluted slightly, but I'm still pretty happy with the end product. You know, we did get three mentions of the giant clam in there. So <laughs> quite possibly more than any other Doctor Who nonfiction book. Well, Something it's... To- it, it, I, I, I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb and say that giant clams are probably unrepresent underrepresented in the interests of a great deal of the previous compilers of such books. But yeah, um, I'm along there. But when you if you just sort of take a book take the book the whole, obviously tons and tons of different perspectives in there, um, and probably no small amount of disagreement. If you take the book at a whole. What kind of picture do you get of Doctor Who? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I think there's nobody in this book that doesn't love the show. And I think that's universal in, in looking at any of these types of books. I mean, everybody can can watch Doctor Who and they're going to bring something that's relevant to them out. Um, and I, I think that the overall perception is that... Women can can watch a show that sitting right next to, um, you, you know, the male person in their life or male friends, and they're going to walk away with something maybe just a little bit different, maybe a slightly different perspective or a slightly different impression of something. And not that 
one is more valid than the other, but it is different. And, and I, I found that to be something interesting as the essays were rolling in, how sometimes the perspectives really fell along vanish lines and sometimes they didn't. Um, and, it, and to see that kind of consistency and inconsistency even back to back in some of these essays was kind of fascinating to look at. I'd like to uh, throw that question to you, Liz, um, uh, or, or spin off of what Deb just said. Um, uh, a man and a woman sitting on the sofa or watching from behind the sofa, uh, watching the same episode of Doctor Who, coming away fr- with it, with different things, and yet in um, in in Chicks on Ravel Time, you know, there's no monolithic female perspective, but it, wow. but it's, but but there is, but there is a, but there is a female what what you call in uh, what you all call in different places in the book, you know, the female gaze. What what is could you could you help uh, could you help a white guy understand what what's meant by that? E, well, um, oh, good lord! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I I I I'm afraid my my I no no I can't I'm <laughs> I'm gonna jump in I, here I'm gonna throw you I'm gonna throw you a life go jacket. ahead and jump in. <laughs> I just, it's just, it's just, I want, I want, you're, you're, you're talking about, well, I don't know if it's half the fandom, I don't know how, how, it, how it breaks down, but, um, you're, you're looking at the, the oh, oh, all the books of non-fiction Doctor Who stuff, it's all dominated by men, by the male perspective, mm-hmm. and you're talking about cutting out half of the fandom sort of viewpoint here, and you know, it's, it's not, it's not monolithic, but if you're going to, if you're going to generalize terribly, I suppose, I think you'll generally find that female fans have more awareness of certain issues. They pay more attention to how women are represented in the show or indeed not represented in the show. Uh, I think in general, they uh, care more about character development or, or little character moments. Uh, they care less about special effects or ridiculous monsters. In fact, find those to be very, generally speaking, quite fun things you know you mock them but you mock them lovingly if they're terrible or you admire them even you know when they're you, you take them in the context of their time and okay and, and, and again i am i am generalizing terribly but based on my experience they tend they tend to take the show a little bit less less seriously you know it's less about numbers and lists and more about um <laughs> well and and more about stories and characters for them which is again it's, it's a horrible generalization but that, that, that's my experience. It, it, it is a very broad brush to say, you know, male fans look at it like baseball stats. You know, they keep track of production codes and, and monsters and what episodes and what planets were visited. And, and you know, females look at things through a more emotional lens. But um, in, in my perspective, I just think life experiences and what you bring to that also affect your gaze. I mean, obviously, women had a much stronger reaction to some of even um, Moffat-era storylines with Amy and the baby and that sort of thing. You know, they're the reactions were a little stronger um, in some cases. And I just think that's more life experiences, what you've gone through. You know, if, if you've been in a situation on a job where you have kind of been shunted to the side, you feel that a little bit more keenly when you see that on screen where it may not even register to to a male fan sitting next to you. Um, so I think it's just, it's kind of what you're bringing internally to what you're watching to the show is how you kind of react to it, where somebody might not think it's a particularly big deal, but you're kind of going looking at that and saying, hmm, yeah, that's a little dodgy. 
Yeah, a really a really strong example of that uh, is one of the uh, one of the essays that really brought me up was uh, Kay Tempest Bradford's "The Women We Don't See." Now she's taking a look at the at Philip Hinchcliffe's first season of Doctor Who, which, um, as far as you know, as far as the guys on, on the message boards and running and doing podcasts and things like that, you know, this is a beloved season of Doctor Who. And, yeah, and so wrong. So wrong. It's very sad. <laughs> well, and and Tim and and. Uh, K. Tempest Bradford uh, just brings you right up and tells you, you know, there's a hell of a lot of stuff that's missing from this season, um, chiefly, yeah, women. Yeah, yeah. it's something that it's something I was absolutely delighted to read. Cause it's something I've always felt about that season. I love the, the best thing about it's Elizabeth Slade, the relationship she has with. Oh gosh, that's the right season I'm talking about, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, moment. Um, yeah, and, and the relationship she, she has with the Doctor in it. But because it's so influenced by hammer horror tropes, uh, it tends to basically erase women from the storylines because I'm a huge fan of hammer horror. Um, but I'll be first to admit they are incredibly sexist and often unwatchably racist. And, you know, if I want to watch hammer horror, I'm going to watch hammer horror. And uh, the Doctor Who does not, at least in the main series, have Peter Cushing to kind of offset the, oh, dear God, what are you saying about women in this? element of it so um i i found her essay delightful to read because it's like yay and that's one of the goals too when we were putting this together was you know how how would women look at these sacred cow episodes uh, you know how would they react to these you know everybody loves uh the towns of wang chiang is one that, that comes up a lot but you know there's some there's a, you're, you're choking liz you're choking i don't know um, why <laughs> I don't know. It, it it could be because people are people slag off the giant rat, man. The giant rat. Well, funny, well, funny. But you know, you you can you can look at a series and say, oh, yeah, that's a really good story. But you know, you have to see this. You have to see that there are some issues here, and let's talk about these issues. When you when you raise these issues, um, how does the typical how, how you have these co- conversations at the bar at the at the galley or Chicago TARDIS, which I believe we're all going to be at. Or, yes. Uh, um, when you when you have these conversations with uh, folks, typically but not exclusively guys who just completely miss these sorts of things, like the sexism of Hinchcliffe's first season. How do those conversations typically wind, uh, oh, resolve they're themselves? Absolutely fine. I, I spend a great deal of my convention time complaining about the talents of Wing Chang and how I think it's dreadfully dull and boring. And uh, I, I have a generally positive reaction to that. I, I find that people nod along <laughs> and disagree with me for some reason. I have no idea why. <laughs> it's just so convincing. <laughs> I, I, I found that, uh, as we like to say, you know, there's there's so many people so very wrong about Doctor Who all the time. Uh, but it, it, seriously, I mean, having these conversations with, with male fans and male friends, it, it, everybody is, oh, it's a good story, but yeah, I guess you're right. I can see that. Um, I've never personally had anybody push back, you know, tell me I'm being too sensitive or taking anything seriously. Uh, in my personal experience, and, and maybe that's just because, you know, I know some incredibly awesome Doctor Who fans, has been, you know, acknowledgement that it, it, things are, have not always been peaches and cream. Um, 
and and even there's been some heated conversations. I think Liz can attest to this at three o'clock in the morning at LobbyCon at Galley. Um, no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> about issues, but um, you know, the one thing I can say is most fans are open for that sort of debate, which I find. I find really wonderful and fascinating. Yeah. And the other side, of course, is that it has these issues. Doctor Who, I think, has always had these issues. Indeed, television has always had these issues. And yet, we there are so many female fans, so many women get something out of this show. You know, in spite of what we, we consider some, some very negative things going on there. And it's interesting to see, for example, in Bradford's essay, that, yeah, she's very critical about the lack of women, but then the one woman that is consistently in the show, she thinks it's marvellous, brilliant, you know? It's, I think it's very interesting to see, see that side of things as well. And for her, it's Sarah that saves the season. Yeah. Um, and it, it, and when, you encounter, when, when you encounter stories that are that problematic, um, is is that what you do to maintain your love for your your love for the show regardless is that there's there's so much other good stuff here that I can latch on to that yeah. I, I can wrestle with the other stuff later I, I think that's generally the female viewing experience across all media <laughs> you, yeah. you have Good to point. find the thing that you, you have to latch onto the thing that you love because yeah. if you latch onto the things that are negative you you probably start smashing things and, and become very bitter about life um, but you know this show is every person who wrote in this book even though you know they they put the harsh light of day on some of these issues they love this show they're passionate yeah, yeah. about the I th- show yeah they I, th- I think they not sorry, sorry. about it if they weren't sorry. well okay. some of the some of the essays are not harsh at all i'm no. um, I'm, I'm specifically calling out uh lovely laura mead's ep- uh, essay <laughs> yeah, on on david, so on, on david Tennant's pars- posterior <laughs> Now, this is a subject. On, Sorry, I love her this is a subject on which I have, you know, limited ability to relate. However, I am married to somebody who, you know, as soon as I read Laura's essay, I was like, "Okay, here, Shannon, read it. You, this is the first one that I want you to read in the entire thing." <laughs> and I almost got, I, 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 there was almost a sonic boom from her shaking her head in appro- in agreement so violently. Um, now, and this is. Talk talk about the female gaze. Um, I and I read that, and I thought to myself, there are going to be some people who are not going to be happy with this essay because uh, it's confirming everything fanish about those girls that are oh, infesting that's, that's our com- awesome thing about it. That's what I absolutely adore about it. Not only is it very smart and very funny, but Laura is is very specifically one of those fangirls that so much of old school fandom complained about when the new series started because it's like yeah they're only in it they're only there to squee over David Tennant or Christopher Eccleston or John Barrowman they don't care about this show they don't care about this history and that sort of thing and you know that's that's very much the 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 kind of rather unpleasant stereotype not no I'm phrasing that badly the the that I think I think to stereotype female fans in that way is unpleasant not that they're doing that is unpleasant right um and she's she's very much that fan, and she's completely unapologetic about it, and she's completely confident with it, and she's so funny with it, and and gloriously she tried so hard to get into the old series, and I just thought that was wonderful that she, that she tried like half a dozen different stories, and they just didn't work for her, and that's you know fair enough, you know it's fifty to twenty years old, it's very different from television nowadays, so um, I it's not it's um, 
I, I'm a very old school fan, so it's very not much my perspective, but it's very much a perspective that I'm, I'm familiar with in the fandom now, and I think it's wonderful that we have that in uh, in one of our essays. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, when we both read that, we Liz and I, like, you know, emails back and forth. We thought it was we thought it was just hysterically funny, and it was really, really smart. Um, and it touches on an area that is especially prevalent today where, you know, we have fans policing fans on what is a proper way to be a fan. And I don't think there should be rules. There's not a guidebook. There's no secret did, handshake. Did you not read my rules? I, I read I your rules. And, and you had me until Time Monsters. My, rules. Oh. Liz, Liz oh. posted a very, very brilliant list of rules of what you need to do and accomplish in your life to be a proper Doctor Who fan. How to spot a true Doctor Who fan. How to spot a true Doctor Who fan. Don't want any of these fakers out there. That's right. I encourage everybody to (laughs) to go to her blog and read this immediately. Um, So, to me, it it really, it kind of exemplified somebody who just was confident and smart and said, this is what I like and this is why it's important that we have this type of action hero because we, she's making a very specific point, even though she's talking about how lovely David Tennant is, but, you know, her point of this essay that it's kind of getting lost in all the furor over the title is that um, David Tennant's character and David Tennant's doctor exemplified a new a new type of hero that is very appealing to a, a different segment of female fans, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean that was that was one of the one of the many essays that we received that just was delightful and and just was exactly what we're looking for that perspective. We wanted all perspectives. I find it really remarkable, and I've gone about this at length on the podcast before that uh, so much effort can be expended into teaching somebody what the right Doctor Who is when Doctor Who has never been the same thing. Um, I, I, think, I think you'll find that the right Doctor Who is, is Patrick Troughton. You know, there, there are some bizarre people who, who disagree on that, but, but, you know, essentially they're wrong. And it's very sad. It's sad. One day, I, I hope that everyone will bask in the unadulterated glory that is the Dominators, quite clearly the greatest Doctor Who story ever told. Do, do you see what making this book was like, Chip? <laughs> I, I think I think I would love to have been a fly on the wall during this one. I would love to have heard some of these Skype guess. conversations. Most it's not about Patrick Troughton. Can you believe it? Shocking. I know, I know. I know. It, and you I totally know. discount my John Pertwee theories. I just, <laughs> it's... So, it's what can we get anything done? So, Liz, does this mean that we can expect uh, as a follow-up chicks on Ravel Troughton? Oh, dear Lord, that would be this beautiful thing. <laughs> I, I, I would if I got a chance to, yes. Oh, boy. Obviously, <laughs> chicks on Ravel Troughton, with, with the last chapter about the time monster, because, you know. Oh, my God. <laughs> Let me take a let me uh, throw out another uh, essay that I really liked. It's by Courtney Stoker, Maids and Masters: The Distribution of Power in Doctor Who Series Three, and um, you hear all the um, new fan, the criticism uh, of the of Series One and Two, the relationship between the Doctor and Rose, and uh, talk about the he's not he and she aren't anywhere near the same level she's not good enough for him that's a that's sort of a male criticism that you heard a lot around that time and then you get to series 3 and Courtney helped me look at that series in an entirely different way because this is an, a series entirely about the doctor not being on anyone else's level and the the power that he 
exerts over them. That's a great essay. You know, it really is a good essay. And it's one that, um, obviously, it touches on some huge issues that have been going on, um, particularly since the the reboot, where you've had a a much more... not even a romantic, but a much more personal relationship sort of thing going on, and whether it's a wink, wink, nod, nod, um, or, you know, avert as it was with Rose. Uh, and that's one, you know, it's curious that you said that really opened your eyes, because as, as good as that essay is, and as solid as that essay is, when it came in, Liz and I had a conversation that um, you know, Lars, our publisher, Lars Pearson, thought this was a fabulous essay as well. And the conversation that Liz and I had said, it is a good essay, but this is not any conversation that was new to us in particular, because in the circles of female fandom, we've been having these sorts of discussions since 2005. Um, it wasn't just male fandom that was talking about the disparity of power between Rose and the Doctor and what, what relationship would be possible. These conversations were just going on and on and on in the female fan circles. And yet they, they really struck a light bulb for a lot of male fans reading this. Oh, I'd never, I never looked at it that way. I never considered that. Which I think is is kind of interesting when you look at the whole purpose of this book is the things that you know we kind of take for granted as female fans that everybody is looking at something and kind of examining these issues. A whole segment of fandom it's never even crossed their mind before. Um, so I think that essay is a, really exemplifies that kind of disconnect that that female fans and male fans can have. Well, that's that's a uh, part of privilege, isn't it? The fact that. Uh, uh Male fans are watching the show, uh, they're identifying with the Doctor, not with the companion character, who is supposed to be the sort of identif- the, the reference point for the audience, but for m- many men watching the show, you know, they want to be the Doctor, they don't want to be the companion, um, and, um, and then... And they and they look at that that whole that whole dynamic that power differential as well. We don't want to have our doctor character brought down to mere humanity's level. Um, I, I think that's I think that's reading the show from a point of privilege. Whereas uh, you know it it makes perfect sense for you to tell me we were having these conversations all the time. Where were you? Mm-hmm. I, I think there's awful lot of women out there that kind of want to be the doctor too. Um, Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, when I was when I was a little girl, I, I didn't dream about the TARDIS coming up and the doctor taking me away. I dreamt about having my own TARDIS. Yes, you know? exactly. <laughs> but again, from looking at going back to that female gaze and female life experiences, um, you know, a, a, a male fan looking at that show. Whether he wants to be the doctor or not be the doctor, he's not seeing anything that he doesn't see already in real life. And it's nothing that is glaring or shocking. It's just the way life is, where a female fan looking at that is thinking, you know, it really is kind of a not a healthy relationship. There's not a healthy distribution of power in these relationships. Um, and it's something that, you know, unfortunately, is, a lot of women come up against in many different areas of their life. So it's not that it wasn't a new conversation to be had. It was like, you know, we're having this conversation within the context of a real show that we love. And, you know, how do we kind of justify these things and how can we kind of reconcile ourselves with them? What were some of the other essays in there that's, that uh, really op- – I've been using the phrase open your eyes entirely too much in your pod- in this podcast. But uh, what were some of the essays that came in that – made you that uh brought a new perspective to you as you're uh as you're reviewing them and um suggesting edits oh 
um, for me, there were there were two in particular that I, after them, that they somewhat changed my mind or made me want to go watch a new, the season again was uh, Joan Francis Turner's Barbara Wright and the Limits of Intervention, which after reading, I was just like, oh my God, Barbara's even more amazing than what I thought. I must watch all of season one right away again. And it was just, it was wonderful. It was very exciting because I have season one, seen season one a few times and Barbara Wright is my favourite companion. Uh, so to have to have a new perspective on it, her to 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 see the the sort of uh, the depth of the characterization you could, you could read into it was very exciting. So it did make me just love it all over again, which is quite nice. And the other one was uh, the still point from Anna Bratton because I'm I, I love all of Doctor Who, but I often say quite mean things about parts of it because I love them slightly less than others. Um, and I, I can be quite mean about the Fifth Doctor. Uh, but after reading hers, I was like, oh, oh, interesting. Oh, okay. Maybe he isn't quite so wet as what I thought. Maybe I've been being a bit cruel all these years, you know? So so those were my two. Oh, you know, this is kind of like picking your favorite children here. It's really hard. Um, you know, depending on the day of the week it is kind of is kind of my perspective. I know one that I loved Emma Nichols' essay, um, A Dance with Graphics. Uh, it, it just was joyful. That was awesome too. It, it, it really was. I mean, I just, I just want to, it just makes me want to like buy all the classic Doctor Who ever and like just sit down and like wallow Why in it. Why have you not bought all the classic Doctor Who ever? Uh, because you know I didn't start watching until 2005. There's only so many hours in the day. Emma watched it all in a year. She <laughs> Yes, getting back to the podcast here, um, and you know, I really, I really enjoyed the perspective um, that Teresa Jacino brought to hers in looking at the Doctor. Uh, yeah. You know, was his was that particular season? You know, was he acting as a teenager? And I never really kind of thought of it that way. And it kind of you know gave me a little head tilt and thought, oh yeah, I can really see that. Um, so that, I, and I was just, and maybe it's because I was just rereading that one yesterday as I was flipping through my copies of my book, um, that that one kind of caught out, you know, but there's others that just kind of, that, that stick with you. Um, you know, uh, Amal El-Matar's essay is just lyrical and beautiful. It's the one that concludes our, our book. And, you know, she came to Doctor Who fandom through a novelization and had no idea that this was a show. Oh, this um, novelization, I think for our, our fans, you know, the listeners who, who know, it was a novelization of Planet of the Daleks. <laughs> that she found in Lebanon, you know, and, and just it, and what an impact that this had on her life and, and how it has affected her. Um, this planet of the Daleks. I, I know, poor thing. Um, and Emily Kozlik's about the music. I mean, how often does one think about the music in, in the show? Well, if you're Emily, uh, quite a bit. Well, if you're Emily, a lot. Um, and after you've read her essay, you think about it quite a bit more. You, you think about it quite a bit more. So I... So you're in love with the Cybervan's theme, but like, I, I want to have that. I want to have that as my theme song as I walk through <laughs> life. <laughs> That's right. As we walk into Chicago TARDIS, we'll have it playing in the background. Um, so yeah, there were so many people that brought their own kind of expertise to these things. You know, Carolyn Simcox, obviously, and their the spirituality. Um, Laura, Laura McCullough, McCullough, you know, talking you know talking about the physics and science in, in Doctor Who, and and you know, she had a lot of fun with that essay. And is it? can these things really happen? Um, and, you know, at what point do you just kind of say, you know, there's some good science here, but you got to 
kind of give it up and and go with it. Uh, so there was a lot of people that brought some perspectives that I had never thought about or considered, but n- you know, now I can't not see it, as they say. Mm-hmm. And that's the power of a book like this, uh, especially for guys who completely miss the power differentials and companion doctor relationships and things like that, is to um, to conf- to confront those. Uh, those perspectives. Now, this is a season by season uh, look at the sh- uh, at the show, but you you arranged it, you know, f- for for reading you know, thematically. It's not an episode guide of any sort of thing. No. You're, you're you 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 two are orchestrating this thing to get the reader to just sort of explore different things about the show, but it's not an episode guide. Not at all. And that there was a lot of debate going back and forth between Liz and myself and our publisher. And uh, Michael Thomas was helping us out at that point as well, um, offering some advice um, in how do we arrange this? Um, because you want to appeal broadly to the entire fan base. So you want classic Who fans, you want you know, strictly new Who fans, you want this book to be really accessible. Um, you know, we talked about starting with season six and working our way backwards. We talked about starting with season one, and we just realized at some point that by kind of mixing them all up and making them a little bit arranged, a little bit more thematically, it really, as we say in our in our introduction, this really mirrors the viewing experience that most of us have had watching mm-hmm. Doctor Who. I mean, there's very few of us that, uh, you know, sat down in 1963 and started with episode one, series one, and just continuously watched through. I mean, you get recommendations. That's my mom. <laughs> <laughs> there's one. Um, you know, you get recommendations. You from friends you you really enjoy a particular doctor um you are subject to the whims of the bbc vhs release schedule <laughs> or the yes. even more baroque uh, american public broadcasting system exactly Aww. so this is this is you can dip in you can read it sequentially you can read it backwards forwards you can just kind of what catches your eye um and i think that's that's kind of how i've my doctor who experience has been um and I think it's it's been a vast majority of us. And I suspect it was also the hand of the editors who made sure that each essay was very readable and understandable for people who had never seen those episodes in the first place. <laughs> uh, there's a, there's a lot of stuff in there for uh, for if if you haven't if you haven't seen anything of season seven of the classic series, for example, um, you know. Chances are very, very good that the essay tells you everything you need to know as it's making its point. It does, but it's not a recap. Um, Our goal was to make it understandable, to make it interesting, and make you want to go watch this. Mm-hmm. whether for the first time or watch it again. Um, and I'll be the first to admit, I have not seen every episode of Doctor Who. Liz has. Um, you know, we, we were a good team. Yes, I, I, I made a time machine and went back to 1960. <laughs> <laughs> we made a good team and our levels of experience were different. We came from different Fanish, from Fanish places, so we kind of complemented yeah. each other. Yeah, I, I think it worked very well like that because there, there was an excellent contrast in, in, our, in well, what we thought of the show but we were very much in accord about what we wanted the book to present. And, and she got several frantic emails from me saying, "What is? am I reading this right? Can you explain it to me? You know, do we need to, to clarify this? Is it just me being obtuse because I haven't seen this particular episode? So she was wonderful. She was a font of knowledge. Yeah, that, that's how I think of myself. As a <laughs> <laughs> and the Cyberman theme as you walk through life. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh man, right. this it, it's it's such a good book. I I, I thoroughly enjoy reading it, and um, I, I wonder what's next. Um, now we've had we've had uh, Chicks Dig Time Lords, uh, Chicks Unravel Time, um, the other books from Mad New Region. Uh, there's an well, upcoming. Well, I, I like the the Chicks Dig Patrick Troughton idea. Well, I, I'm going to be pinching <laughs> there that. There we go. Um, but I've I've also seen a fair bit online um, from uh, Michael Thomas about uh, work is go- underway on Queers Dig Time Lords, mm-hmm. and I'm there's this flowering of. Um, alternative readings of Doctor Who all of a mm-hmm. sudden, and I'm wondering where this where this goes next. And I'm also wondering: is it possible that these alternative readings are go- what a- effect they're going to have on the show going forward as they hopefully sort of permeate back into the into the consciousness? Having uh, Russell T Davies, the guy who made Queer as Folk, running Doctor Who, there it was definitely a different doctor who from the previous from from the classic series in many ways include and having that um open more open perspective um uh, this time around um had, had made a difference what do you think might happen as a result of these alternative readings of doctor who uh becoming more prominent you know just the obviously the greater visibility of female fandom in general but People are looking at this show in a different way now, and it can't quite be the same um, patrician uh, traveling through time, um, can it? Liz? I, I, I think you'll find that something like this is discussed in our season 16 essay, What Would Your Mana Do?, which you should consult for an answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I would hope that we look at, okay, let's go back to the Davies era, which I, I still think is sort of an anomaly in um, the, the history of Doctor Who. And I've said, I think I've said that on here before, uh, it, but it was a little bit kind of, it was a little bit more open. And it was a little bit kind of broken wide a little bit more, I think, than traditional Who has been. I mean, you had um, bisexual characters who... It just wasn't a very special episode of Doctor Who where we had, you know, gay, lesbian, and queer characters. My hope would be as these books go forward, you don't have a need for a particular volume just focusing on women's perspective or queer perspectives. That it's just a perspective um, that is accepted. That not everybody's going to look at things the same. And and uh, you know, this show is people bring different things to the show, and people are taking different things from the show, and that's okay. Whether you're a new season fan or whether you're just a David Tennant fan, um, or whether you know you're one of the devoted brethren who know every um, production code that there is, um, you know it's it's big enough for all of us. Liz, how do you think Doctor Who may change in the future? Well, uh, I'm I'm personally hoping for a pretty decent remake of of season seventeen with more sword fighting and more interspecies Victorian lesbian detectives. <laughs> is is basically what I'm hoping for, yeah. Um, how would it actually change? Oh, God knows. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's tends to be a reflection of its times. It it does its best to be progressive. How successful it is 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 is, is depends on on the viewers. Um, I I think it'd be quite nice to get a woman to play the Doctor at some point. I think it'd be um, quite nice to get a woman to write for the Doctor. But I don't. Oh, or that. I also yeah. quite like that. Let's start small. Let's start small and doable. 
If only Jane Espenson was British. <laughs> it's, it is getting a little bit silly now. It's just embarrassing looking at the writing. And no women. Gosh. There's, you know, I don't know. Are they afraid of it? It's, it, it, it's, it is a little astonishing. I was just on Wikipedia the other day and looking at um, air dates for referencing things and, you know, looking at all the writers of every episode. And I just really find it hard to believe that there's not a woman out there that can handle this. It's, it's astonishing to me. Apparently, I don't know what's going on over there, Liz, in the UK. Can't you shake anybody loose? Maybe, I don't know. I mean, Helen Reno wrote some episodes. I quite like them. Um, I don't know. I think it's very sad. I think, I think it's missing missing, you know, a, a whole new perspective when it's just constantly dudes writing everything. Well, the know? the the um the career path for Doctor Who creators appears to be be part of the club, um produce things in other media, work with other people who are part of the um BBC Boys Club and just sort of that that sort of that sort of um career connections networking thing that women constantly run into in any other career right well you know let's start a petition to get jack rayner to write an episode you know she's she's come up through that system as well and i think does she i don't know does she have television writing experience because that's that's the other thing that it's not just the fanish to semi-pro fanish to pro route thing it, it, it tends to be it was writers they all had tv writing experience that, that's well. true that's true yeah. um but but the, uh, but there but was a certain surely there was the... there was thingy who, who was it that wrote captain jack harkness because she was awfully good forgotten her name that's dreadful oh dear but she was good she'd get her back <laughs> you're gonna make I... me go to wikipedia aren't you no no well no it's just it's just just no sorry i was just pet whining about it as well this is, is me typing. This is, uh, this is great radio, <laughs> folks. I'm now compelled to check Wikipedia to find out that Captain yeah. Jack Harkness was written by Catherine Tregana. Yeah, she's got a great name as well. Tregana. Sounds cool. I like that. So, yep. uh, Chicks Unravel Time is out in the world, um, easily easily obtainable by ebook if you can't find a copy, a physical copy in front of you. Um, yes, it's very easy to get a physical coffee. <laughs> we're, we're doing really well there. <laughs> I there, there have, we, we, all of our pre-orders, our pre-orders sold out, our Amazon stock sold out, and we've been assured that that copies are winging their way to warehouses across the globe as we speak. But yes, um, I, we anticipate them being available to purchase any minute. I, 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 in the meantime, I got my copy on the Nook, and I have been, um, as as they say, d- devouring it and loving it, and I want more. Yay. I, I think that um, the genie is out of the bottle. I think there's going to be a lot more. There's a lot more women writing about this. There's a lot more women who are unapologetic in their fanish experiences, and I think you're going to get more, Chip. Yay! Or yeah. should I say, squee? There, uh, that's okay. One, I, I think I want one about the the under under uh, underloved monsters. You know, all those one off bin bags that turned up. <laughs> the the, the, the ogron god. 
That's that deserves an essay all by itself. I'm sure that someone can write three thousand words on an orange bin bag, can't they? <laughs> yeah. Deb Stanish and Liz Miles are the co-editors of Chicks Unravel Time. And uh, if you haven't got that book yet, don't wait for the paper. If you can't help it, get the ebook or wait for the ebook. Whatever you need this book because it is a great look at the entirety of Air Doctor Who. Liz and Deb, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, thank you for having us. And that's Two Minute Time Lord Podcast number two eighty-five. Next time you hear from me, I'll be coming to you from Chicago TARDIS, the convention over Thanksgiving weekend. I'm even taking my family to this one. I hope they'll forgive me for depriving them of turkey in favor of Doctor Who. If you're at Chicago TARDIS, say hello. I will see you there. Two Minute Time Lord is at TWOMinuteTimeLord.com, on Twitter at numeral 2 minute time Lord, at Facebook at Facebook.com slash numeral 2 minute time Lord on iTunes, and wherever else good podcasts may be found as well as mine. See you in Chicago. <laughs>